Well, our message today is from the Glimpse series, and I got to tell you right from the beginning that uh, our sermons are, are a little different for me. I, I'm sure they are for you too. They're just like different genre. If you were here for Intentional Life, Intentional Life is like that, uh, that good business book that you pick up in the airport, you know, and every time you open a chapter, there's a new principle that just kind of kicks you up to another level. And then Shift, the series, was a lot like a, a great novel, a great narrative. Every, every chapter is a new story, and and, and I really enjoy preaching those kinds of messages. But today's message is a challenge for me. It's probably not, just between you and me, it's probably not my favorite style of message, but it's very, very important to us because it's going to give us a lot of information. I call this a lobster message. Uh, I like to eat lobster, but it's hard. You know, you've got to work hard. You've got to break through some hard stuff in order to get to the meat. But, man, when you get to the meat, you just dip it in butter, and boy, is it good. So uh, that's where we are today. We're going to have to roll up our sleeves and work and um, it, it's not going to be necessarily a story that you can just kind of wait for the next part of the narrative to fall into your lap. It's something that we're going to have to think through. I'm here to talk to you about prophecy. Prophecy is history written before it happens. And only one person can do that. You can say, well, Mark, I know about people that said something was going to happen and it came true. But let me ask you a question. Did everything that person say was going to happen come true? That's the difference, you know? You can, you can get on to, uh, you know, to CNBC or to, MSM, or to the, the business channel, you know, and you can watch the guy who's talking about hot, hot stock, stocks to pick and investments. And sometimes those stocks go up, sometimes they go down, you know. Every once in a while they're right, most of the time they're wrong. Uh, you can get on to ESPN, you can watch the prognosticators tell you who they think is going to win the NFL games this week. And they get some of them, but they also miss some of them. And you have to understand that when it comes to telling the future and being perfect all the time, there's only one person who can do that, and that person is God. In fact, God's going to say to us in just a moment, we're going to read this in Isaiah 42, God's going to say to us that everything he says is going to come to pass comes true, 100% of the time. And whenever he would send out a prophet in the Old Testament, they employed a test. And that test was this. And before I say, we'll tell you what the test is, every once in a while I hear somebody tell me, well, I have the spiritual gift of prophecy. Well, if you really do, I wonder if you're up for this test that they had to go through in the Old Testament. Here's what it was. If they said something was going to happen and it didn't, just one thing didn't come true, they stoned them. So do you still have the gift of prophecy? <laughs> I don't think most of us would want to go with that test. I mean, we, we've been right about a few things we thought would happen, but most of the time we're wrong. Only God can tell you the future before it happens. Only God can write history in advance. Listen to what Isaiah chapter 42 says. This is God speaking. I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to anyone else, nor share my praise with carved idols. Everything I prophesied has come true, and now I will prophesy again. Listen to this. God said, I will tell you the future before it happens. That makes prophecy something that's of keen interest to us. It's like getting next week's newspaper today and knowing what's going to happen with absolute certainty. Now, God doesn't spell it out for us in that kind of detail, but he does tell us what's going to happen in the future, and God says that his credentials are impeccable. Everything he's prophesied in the past has come true. God cannot lie, and God said, I'm going to do it some more. I'm going to tell you things that are going to happen, and God says, you can take it to the bank. Now, if you're holding a Bible in your lap, as some of you are, I want you to know that that Bible is comprised of several things. About 50% of it is history. It's God telling you stories about people and places so that we will see what happens in people's lives. And, you know, we look around the world today, and people are doing all kinds of things, and they're all into all kinds of stuff. But if you look in your Bible long enough, you'll find some other people in the Bible who did those same things. God wants us to see what human nature is like. God wants us to see what he's like and how God interacts with human nature. 
So 50% of your Bible is stories. It's history. About 25% of the Bible is just God telling you what to do. God just rearing back, throwing strikes and saying, do this, don't do this, live this way, don't live this way. But a little more than 25% of it is prophecy. It's God doing what he said. He said, I will tell you the future before it happens. About a quarter of your Bible, actually a little more than your Bible, is God telling you the future before it happens. John Walford, who was a great prophetic scholar in the 20th century, I think perhaps the best, John Walford said there are a thousand prophecies in the Bible. A thousand times when God has said, I will tell you the future before it happens. He says 500 of them have already come true. We're still waiting on the other 500. So if you're fleet of mathematics, you know, and you've been doing the math with me, and you went through all those percentages, and you just heard the John Walford quote, then you would know that when I'm going to talk to you about what's going to happen in the future, I've just volunteered to cover about 125 to 14% of the Bible. But not only have I volunteered to do that, I've volunteered to cover the toughest 12.5% of the Bible. Right out of the box, you know I'm not going to be able to do it. I'm just going to maybe hit and miss today. In fact, I'm probably going to raise more questions then I give answers, which is why next week, when you come to church, any three services on the weekend, it's just going to be a question and answer format. Lance is going to be feeding me questions that you fired up from the floor. In fact, there's a part of your worship folder so that you can ask a question. If I leave a question today and you want me to address it, I won't get to every one, but I'll get to quite a few of them. And, and, and none of our three services will be like any of the rest of them. They'll all three be different because I'll be answering different questions. So it's going to be an interesting weekend next, next week. You know I can't cover all that stuff today, but I, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to cover as much as I can. Now here's why I say that prophecy is difficult to understand. There are three reasons why prophecy is really challenging for us. The first one is a tough one for us Americans. We, you know, we think it's all about us. Not all prophecy is about us. A lot of it has to do with Israel. So when we read a lot of the things that Jesus said or the prophets said in the Old Testament, we struggle to figure it out, and it's because it's not for us. The Jewish people have this deal with God. God has made a deal with them. Certain aspects of prophecy are relational only to Jewish people. Second reason why it's a challenge for us is that God would have a very difficult time explaining a lot of modern inventions to people who lived in antiquity, who lived in old cultures. Imagine God trying to explain an F-16 to somebody who lived in the first century, or a tank, an aircraft gun, or a stealth bomber. I mean, how would God explain a stealth bomber to people in the first century? It's a bomber. Well, what's a bomber? Well, it's an airplane. What's an airplane? Well, it's this plane, and it can, detect, it, it can defy radar. What's radar? So God gave them colorful depictions. You know, he, God, gave them, God gave them their way of understanding what this might look like. And we read it in the book of the Revelation, and we say, what's this dragon tail that's flicking stars out of the sky? We have a hard time understanding that. So it's a challenge because many cultures have had to deal with these prophecies, and, and many modern inventions couldn't be explained to earlier time frames. Here's the third reason why prophecy is hard to understand. God didn't give us a whole lot of details because he knew we would get bogged down in them. So he gave us what we need to know. Now, I, I've lived in Wichita for 22 years, and I understand one thing about Wichita. It's the entrepreneurial capital of the world, and you people are great business people. I mean, I've always said this, the greatest business people in the world live right here in this region. We, we, up to this point, we have no theme parks, we have no mountain ranges, we have no oceans, we have no beaches. So there's only one thing to do in this town, and that's business. Well, maybe two things, going out to eat. So that's, that is Wichita, all right? And I, so when I, when I get up here to speak on the weekend, I know I'm talking to a lot of business people, and I know many of you are at the top of your game, and you lead teams, and you're, you, you run businesses. What happens with you when you're looking down the road three to five years, if you're, let's just say you're in the medical profession, or you're in air and space, or oil business, or whatever, 
What, what if you're looking three or five years down the road and you know there's going to be a paradigm shift in the way your company does business? So you have to get your company ready for it, but at the same time, you're doing business. You have a way of doing business today, and you can't compromise that. How do you deal with that? It's simply this. You frame it out for your leadership in broad terms. You don't give them an SOP manual for what it's going to be like five years from now. You frame it out for them in broad terms. That's so they will know, number one, there is a plan, and number two, they can begin to prepare for that paradigm shift that's coming down the road. That's what God did with us when it comes to prophecy. You know, many times next week I'm going to have to say, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. God did not tell us because there's just a lot of blanks that God leaves. But by the same token, he sketches it out, sketches it out for us in broad details. And so that's what I want to cover this morning in this message. How does my future affect my present? I'd like to know where we are. Would you? I was flying back from the East Coast, and you have to fly through Atlanta a lot of times, and Mary Alice and I were flying through Atlanta, and we, we, we took off from Atlanta, and um, we were an hour late getting into Wichita. And I couldn't understand it because we had an encounter bad weather, and, you know, we took off on time. And here we are, an hour into an hour past the time we were supposed to touch down, and we're still up just cruising, you know. And I look out my window, and there's the lights of this big city. And I think, well, we're coming into Wichita. But I don't recognize any of it. So I, before I realized what I was doing, and this is what your pastor is like, before I realized what I was doing, I just got up from my seat and started walking right to the middle of the aircraft, walked up to the flight attendant. Now, I've got to tell you this, too. It really wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do because it was like the December after September 11th. And I whipped off my glasses, put them back behind my back. And while I'm up there talking to the flight attendant, Marilyn said there's some other, you know, aircraft, air, 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 uh, you know, personnel that, that work for the airline. They're seeing this guy walking up to the cockpit, and they're back there discussing how to take me down in case I'm trying to crash the cockpit while I'm up there. But I just walked up to the flight attendant, and I said, where are we? And so she got on the phone, she asked the pilot, she said, where are we? We got a passenger back here who wants to know where we are. He said, don't you know? We don't know up here either. And he, he was kind of joking with me for a little bit, you know. I, that's what I want to know. I mean, I just feel, I feel myself in this, you know, in the first part of the 21st century, I'm just kind of cruising up here, and I know God's got all these prophecies, and I want to go up to the cockpit and ask, where are we? That's what I want to cover for you today. Now, before you can know where we are in, in these, what we call last days, it's very important for us to back away and look at God's plan through the ages. Because if you don't understand, and if I don't understand how this all came down from the past, we won't know how God is going to work things out in the future. It goes like this. When God, when everything started off, it was just God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And there came a point where God decided he wanted some helpers, so he made some angels. But God had a hunger for children. Do you realize that God has put within us some of his traits, some of the good things that we have, some of the good natural traits that we have, God has given them to us so that we will understand something of what God is like. I'm talking to a lot of you mothers right now. You wanted to have children. Nobody had to talk you into it. You just wanted to have children. From the time you were a little girl, you dreamed about having kids. You just had this desire, this yearning for children. I really think God gave you one of his traits. That passion that you have to have children and grandchildren. I'm not saying that men don't have that too, but I mean, we call that the maternal instinct. I honestly believe that's a part of God. God had a craving to have children, and so he made us. What we need to understand, though, is that God doesn't make things like we make things. We human beings are creative, too. We make things, but by George, 
We want those things to do what we tell it to do. We manufacture home appliances. Let's say we manufacture a dishwasher. You get that dishwasher home, you don't ask that dishwasher, do you want to wash dishes or not? You know, I'm going to load you with dishes, put soap in you, and close the door and press the button. But you know what? If you don't want to wash dishes, I understand that. I'm giving you a choice. Would you buy an automobile, put it in the garage, and say, you know, I don't know if you want to run or not. I've had some automobiles that he had to really, you know, you weren't sure about it. But would you give your automobile, would you go down and pay $25,000 for an automobile, park it in the garage, and say, I don't know. It's up to you. Do you want to take me someplace today or not? No, we make something. We want it to serve us. We want, we want robots. That's not what God wanted. God gave us a choice. Because, see, God wanted children to love him from their own free will. From the moment God gave us all a choice, things got real dicey. Because at that moment, God's creation had the opportunity to select to follow him or to choose not to follow him. God put Adam and Eve in the garden. We call it the Garden of Eden. God said, here's the And he put a test in there. And the test was real simple. Some people believe there was the tree of life and there was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. That tree of knowledge of good and evil, God said, stay away from it. Right now, you only know good. You don't know the dark side. So he said, stay away from that tree. Some scholars believe had they eaten of the tree of life, if they had chosen that, they would have never died. But you know the deal. Adam and Eve, they said, we're not going to obey God. They ate of the fruit. And it really wasn't anything to do with that fruit. It wasn't that the texture of that fruit killed them or anything like that. It was just that God had made a test. He had given them a choice. And when Adam and Eve failed that test, you have to understand that not only did they fail that test, they were enrolled for us as well because they were our parents. From the moment Adam and Eve failed the test, God had a choice to make, a very clear choice. He could either A, give up on his creation. I mean, after all, he didn't have a whole lot of investment in it. He just spoke it into existence, made Adam out of dust. It was not like God had to look at his creation and say, well... I've got so much invested in this. It wasn't like that at all. God could have just let us spin off into a black hole where the earth is just a tiny pinprick in the vastness of the universe. God could have said, hey, I'm out of here. On the other hand, he could choose to rescue his planet, rescue his people. That would mean two things. For God to rescue this planet, he would have to, A, pay for the damage that Adam and Eve had done. And that's important. Because, see, here's the deal. Many of us have the idea, well, God is a loving God, and God just sort of looks, you know, if you're not just real bad, then it's okay. It's like we have this sin quota, right? You know, we all sin, but, like, if you only do, like, 20 sins a day, you're probably okay. If you do 100, you're really bad, you're going to be in a whole lot of trouble. That's so wrong because every sin must be paid for. You say, well, I thought God was a God of love. He is. He's a God of perfect love, but he's also a God of justice. He's a God of perfect justice. We wouldn't even think very much of our criminal court system, our human court system. If, you know, you know, if a person who was who DWI went in before a judge and the judge and the jury or whatever said, well, hey, hey, we're all sinners, you just check out, you know, don't worry about it. Oh, we think very much of somebody who was an armed robber and they went before the court and the court said, hey, you know what? Everybody slips up every now and then. We're a, we're a court of love. And you want a court to be a court of justice. You want it to be merciful, but you also want it to be a court of justice. And just as, you know, you can go as far in love as you can go and you will find God, but you go as far in justice as you go, as you can go, and you will also find God. So here's the deal. Adam and Eve sinned, and not only did they sin, you and I added to that sin. So for God to rescue this planet, he had to find a way, number one, to pay for the damage, and number two, he had to set up another test because the first test was failed. So here's the thing. 
God came up with a plan, and he signed on to the plan. That is such a powerful statement right there. I wish I could say it with greater inflection. God signed on to his own plan to pay for the damage and to set up another test. And in that plan, he made certain commitments to the human race. That is what prophecy is. Prophecy is God's commitments to the human race that he would pay for the damage, set up another test, and eventually bring us into this kingdom of grace that he wants us to have. God knows that there's no way that you and I can live successfully without him governing our lives. And the moment I say that, I know I just turned some of you off. Because you say, Mark, I read between the lines. I know what you're trying to say. You're saying God wants to rule my life. The reason why you and I are negative about that is every experience we've had with authority has been somewhat negative. Because authority, human authority tends to take from us. Maybe legitimately so. But human authority tends to seek its own advantage. God in his authority never takes. God's authority is gracious. The word grace means gift. God wants to bring you into a kingdom where when you do things his way, he gives to you continuously. That's why Jesus would say when he was on the earth, take my yoke upon you. My, My yoke is easy. My burden is light. God wants to call you into a kingdom of grace. So all these commitments that God has made to the human race are prophecies. God is saying, this is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to pay for the damage. This is how I'm going to set up another test. This is how I'm going to bring you into my ultimate kingdom of grace where Jesus, his son, rules and reigns. Now, God's already taken care of a whole lot of that. To Adam and Eve, he said, I'm going to send somebody to pay for your damage. It took 4,000 years, but Jesus showed up into our world, God's son, and we saw what it cost God to pay for our damage. We're going to talk about that in a series called The Visitor that starts in about three weeks. It's our pre-Christmas series, and it's about Jesus and how God sent him into our world. Can't wait to bring that series to you. But Jesus came, and with him came the New Test. This time, it's not either the tree of life or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This time, it's all about Jesus. Will you accept him, or will you reject him? We see that employed, that test employed, that test given uh, with two thieves who died on either side of Jesus. One accepted Jesus, the other rejected him. So God made his commitment. He said he would send somebody to pay for our damage. He would set up a new test. That test is going on right now. Many of us have already said we will accept Jesus as our Savior. Others of us are, are kind of looking at that. My goal today is to talk about that 14% of the Bible that hasn't happened yet. Now, I don't like to give you outlines very well because I'm not really good at outlining sermons. But I'm going to give you three words, and the rest of our sermon today is going to revolve around these three words. They are this, evacuation, tribulation, and inauguration, okay? If you just remember those three words, you'll have, a whole, you'll have some good you know, hangers to put uh, the, the upcoming events on, evacuation, tribulation, and inauguration. Last Sunday... I talked to you about evacuation. Evacuation is Jesus coming back to get us before stuff heats up at the end. And we've already covered it. I won't cover it again, except to say God said Jesus is coming back. Those who are alive will immediately go to be with him in the air. The dead, you know, God will bring their spirits with, them from, uh, with him from heaven, and their bodies will rise from the ground. I don't know how this is going to happen, but then there's a lot of things God does I don't understand. But I know he knows how to pull it off. That's evacuation. God has got to get us out of here. Now, the thing that I find interesting about evacuation is this. We don't know when it's going to happen. God does not tell us. 
I want to read to you a little bit of scripture from Mark chapter 13. And it's going to take a few moments because it's about five verses here. Jesus is talking. And he's saying this. Now learn a lesson from the fig tree. When its branches bud and its leaves begin to sprout, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that his return is very near right at the door. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene before all these things take place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. However, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself. Only the Father knows, and since you don't know what time that will come, be on guard, stay alert. Now, what did Jesus just tell us? Two things. When it comes to his return, the evacuation, nobody knows when it's going to happen. You don't know and I don't know. You know, if, you, if somebody comes to you and says, Jesus is coming back on March the 5th, 2007, you just know you just talked to a nut. I mean, that's a fact. Because there are just lots of nuts out there who know when Jesus is going to come back. The Bible just said nobody knows. But the second thing Jesus said is that you can read signs. That's what I want to look at today. Where are we? Like I went up to talk to that pilot that day. Where are we? How do we read the signs of the rapture when nobody knows the day nor the time? Very big, very big piece of information I need to give you right now. The rapture, the evacuation, is the kickoff for the tribulation. We, the tribulation is a seven-year period of time when the world's going to go through all kinds of horrible things and God's going to take care of final business before Jesus starts the kingdom. The very first part, the very first thing that will happen in the tribulation is the evacuation. So here's the thing. If I take a look at what's going on leading up to the tribulation, I will have a pretty good idea when the rapture is close because God tells us a whole lot about the tribulation. In fact, Revelation chapter 6 through 19 and a lot of other texts tell us about things that are going to happen in the tribulation. So as I watch the precursors to the tribulation, I got a pretty good clue that the evacuation is getting close. Let's talk about the tribulation for just a few moments. It is a seven-year period of time. At the very beginning, the tribulation will seem like utopia. It will seem like man finally got it together. World peace, a great economy. It will seem like we have the solution to all of our issues, and all of it will come together under a global leader. But the Bible says it will quickly devolve into the worst seven years in the history of mankind. This time frame will be characterized by war, disease, shortages, and death on a mammoth scale. If you believe the Bible, if you believe Revelation, and you do the math, one half of the world's population will die in the tribulation. I am glad for the evacuation, aren't you? I'm glad God's getting us out of Dodge or Wichita or wherever before that happens. Now, what do you need to know about the tribulation? Because we've said if we can see some things that are leading up to the tribulation, then perhaps we'll know when we're getting close to the rapture. I want to give you the face of the tribulation, what it's going to look like, and then the second thing I want to tell you is what's really going on behind the scenes. Let's discuss for a few moments the face of the tribulation. Let's just say somebody here today says, I don't want to choose Jesus, and Jesus comes, and you go into that time frame because the moment Jesus comes, bingo clock starts in that final seven years, and you're there. What will, it, what will it be like? First thing you need to know is there will be a centralized global government. This is one thing the Bible is just absolutely, totally clear on. There will be a centralized global government. There have been world empires throughout the ages, but there never has been a one-world centralized global government. Part of that's just because, 
you know, we didn't have communications at the time. We didn't, we didn't have technology the way we have it today. It was just impossible for any one power to rule. And, and God is behind that. Because there was a time back in the book of Genesis when man did try to get together and pull all their evil in a place where they were going to build a tower. God confused the languages so that they couldn't get together. That was God's mercy on this earth. But during the tribulation, there will be a centralized global government under somebody called the Antichrist. The moment I say that, some people are going to envision this demonic character with horns. So wrong. The Antichrist is just the fake Messiah, just like Antichrist would suggest. Satan is a master counterfeiter. And so what he wants to do is he wants to put his boy on, on the throne before the real Messiah shows up. And so he will be the most, I think he'll be the most smooth, the most suave, the most sophisticated, the coolest character, the most ingratiating guy in the world. He will walk along to the, you know, walk onto the world stage and he will say, hey, I got a plan. Here's how we can fix global terrorism. Here's how we can fix the economic issues of our culture. Here's, here's how we can get along and have world peace. 30 or 40 years ago with geopolitics and the way the superpowers were aligned, I didn't see how this could happen. But you know what? Even if you don't believe a word I'm saying today, and that's okay if you don't, but even if you don't believe a word I'm saying today, you and I both have to understand one thing real clearly. There is an absence of strong leadership in our world today. I mean, there was a time, you know, in the 20th century when there was Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt and then even John Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. I mean, I don't, it doesn't matter to me which side of the aisle politically you come from, liberal or conservative. I mean, you can look back in the last 100 years, and you can find powerful leaders of both persuasions. I just don't know that I see that today. And I'm telling you what you know, what you and I both know, in your heart of hearts, surely you and I both have to know this, that if there was a man or woman who could step on the world stage, figure out how to, how to deal with global terrorism and the economies of our world, you and I have to know that the people of this world would fall that man or woman off a cliff. That's the way things are geopolitically today. Maybe not 50 years ago, but that's how it is today. And that's going to happen. There will be a centralized global government. Second thing that will be part of this, second thing you need to know about the face of the tribulation is that there will be a centralized global economy. I don't think there could be a centralized global government without a centralized global economy. There will be a one world economy. That too wasn't possible 50 years ago. I mean, each nation, each, each region, let's say, had its, own, had its own economy, had its own currency. But I really believe in the last days, the Bible teaches us very clearly, there will be a centralized global economy. Now, let's read about this in Revelation chapter 13. The he here is the Antichrist. He required everyone, required everyone, small and great, rich, poor, free, slave, to be given a mark on the right hand and on the forehead. Oh, somebody's heard about that. You know, you read down, this is his number in, in verse 18 is 666. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Do you realize that that's about economics? Read on with me. No one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which was either the name of the beast or the number representing his name. Wisdom's needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. I've got to tell you right now, I don't know exactly how this is going to shake out. But when I was a kid and I would listen to preachers preach, I would sit back there with my cynical, skeptic, iconoclastic mind, and I would say, I don't think that's going to happen. Because I saw it like with the marks a lot or something, you know? I mean, or a tattoo. 
And I, I mean, I knew even in those days there was a black market and a gray market. And I thought, how's, how's a world leader going to pull off some sort of economic program where if you have this number, don't have this number, you can't buy or sell? And I'd sit back and say, well, I don't still see how that's going to happen. I sure see how it could happen today. Because even in some countries around the world, they're beginning to implant chips, computer chips. And, and there's a very compelling reason for it. I mean, we do business over the Internet today. We do business, you know, you can get on the Internet, you can do business with, with all kinds of places around the world today. But we have a big problem with that. Anytime you swipe your card or anytime you give your number out, your credit card number, the, the problem is how do I know you are who you say you are? We have a massive problem with what? Uh, that's right, identity theft. But what if you were wearing your number? What if it was in plan? There was no question about it. I mean, I really think, and I'm just telling you what I think. I may be wrong about this, but I really think this is going to come along in a benevolent fashion before the Antichrist co-ops. I mean, I see this coming on the horizon. There are actually some applications of it already taking place in the world today. There are trial bases for this happening in certain economies. But there will need to be something to centralize this, some sort of prefix to centralize that is part of the one world system. And evidently it will be done with the number 666. Don't understand it all. I just know there's going to be a centralized economy. Third thing I know about the face of the tribulation, these seven years, is that there's going to be a centralized global religion. You know, you can imagine today people, people say, well, how do we know which religion is right? And religions start a lot of the wars, and, you know, religious people fight, and, you know, we've got... You've got the, you know, the Islamofascists, and then people, a lot of people think that if you believe the Bible that you're the moral equivalent of those people, and religious people are the problem. What if we came up with the religion that made everybody happy? Well, if you get the Christians out of here, that'd be one, one thing that would help move that down the highway. And that is going to happen. In Revelation chapter 13, the Bible talks about the Antichrist having a sidekick. He exercised, the Bible says, all the authority of the first beast. That's the Antichrist. And he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast. If you read on in verses 13 and 14, you will see that Satan will equip this false prophet with, with supernatural powers. So there will be a one-world worship. That'll be the face of it. If, if, you know, if, you, if you go on into the tribulation while the rest of us or someplace else, you'll find that there'll be a centralized global government, centralized global economy, centralized global religion. But now here's the part that really intrigues me. I always want to know what's behind what's going on. Because ladies and gentlemen, God is still sovereign even in the tribulation. So God is still back in the background. What's going on from God's perspective in the tribulation? Three things you need to understand. Number one, God wants to show the world what it would really be like if he left the building. We live in a world today where God is increasingly unpopular. You know, you can talk about anybody in public life, but don't talk about God. Can't have the Ten Commandments. Can't use Jesus' name in a high school graduation. Any place where there's public funding, we got to get God out of here. When did God become the enemy? I mean, think about this. But now, here's what I want us to understand. This is a big one. Because you may say, well, Mark, I'm a, you know, I'm a member of the ACLU, and I kind of see it that way. Okay. Let me just say this to you. When, you. when you ask God to leave the building, God isn't the victim. Anytime God leaves the building, I'm the victim. And God says to this world, you don't want me in here? You want me out? Okay, for seven years, I'm going to let you see what it's going to look like if I just step out. See, when he gets his kids out of here, when he gets us out of here, he can do that. 
I mean, that's the reason. A lot of us today are looking at our world, and we're looking at what's happening. You know, and, and I really believe one of the reasons why you're going to see all this centralized global economy and centralized global uh, you know, government and religion, we have a dearth of leadership in all those areas. I mean, look at what's happening even in the Christian community with so-called leadership. And we, we look at our world today, and we think, when is God going to do something about this? And the reason why he doesn't is his kids are here. But when he gets his kids out of the way, God can say, all right, you didn't want me here. I'm going to step out. Romans 1, verse 28, the Bible says, since they thought it foolish to acknowledge God, he abandoned them. In 2 Thessalonians 2, this is a huge verse. The Bible says, for this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one, that is God, the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Listen, we wonder today why catastrophes and why diseases and why disasters, why they're not worse, why they're not broader in their scope, why more people are not killed. The reason for that is God is still in here holding it back, holding evil back. But there will be a time. I mean, when you read the tribulation, you see all those horrible things that are happening. That is because God has left the building. There's a whole lot of reasons why I wouldn't want to be in the tribulation. But I got to tell you, that is the number one on my hit parade. That is the number one reason why I wouldn't want to be around. I wouldn't want to be in a world where God steps out and says, you didn't want me. Now have a look at what it's like when I leave. Number two, God is going to judge the world during the seven years. There's been a lot of evil that is heaped up. And you know, whenever you know, a disaster happens and a timid you know, preacher or some Christian raises his hand and says, you know, it could be, could be God judging the world. It's like all the powers of hell fall on that person. How dare you think that God would judge us? God is a God of love. It is true that God is a God of love. But the question is not how dare God judge us. Most of the time when we ask that question, it's because we know we're sinners and we're scared that he is going to judge us. That's why all those talking heads talk that way. They're whistling through the graveyard. But it's not how dare God judge us. It's how dare God not judge the world. Listen to what the Bible says. God is talking here about rebellious people. In Romans 2 verse 5, but because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming when god's righteous judgment will be revealed now i know i could just skip talking about this but but would you want your doctor not to tell you if you had a problem would you want the weather forecaster to tell you that you know a weather is great when tornadic activity is moving into our area you would expect those guys to shoot straight you expect me to shoot straight this this is serious business here. And I do want you to know God doesn't want you to go through this. I mean, somebody's back here saying, wow, Mark, I'm scared to death. God does not want you to go through this. He wants to rescue you. He wants to evacuate you. Like those people, you know, when Katrina was coming, they, they, the authorities begged them to evacuate. And God doesn't want you to go through this time. The third thing, and the really most important thing about this seven-year period of time is that God has unfinished business with Israel. One more time, God wants to call them back to himself. And that's why the seven years are going to happen the way they're going to happen. But there will be an end to it. And here's how it's going to shake out. Here's how it's going to come down. By the time the seven years are over, all the utopia is long gone. Half the world's population has died. Every imaginable disease, famine, war. It's been a horrible seven years. And the Antichrist will have shreds left of his government. 
But he'll have one more card to play. This is all, you can read this, really it's a multiple text in the Bible, but especially in the last part of Revelation. Antichrist has got one more card to play. And he's going to play the card that world leaders have played throughout the years, time and time again. He will say, it is the Jews' fault. Just like Hitler did and other world leaders. Let's blame the Jews. And the Antichrist will amass his armies in a place, in a valley, the Bible calls Megiddo. If you've ever heard the word Armageddon, it just means it's the valley of Megiddo. It's where the battle's going to take place. And he's just going to say, this is, this is how we're going to pull things back together. We're going to wipe out Israel. Humanly speaking, that is what would happen. But anybody who was counting from the rapture could see that the numbers are counting down to zeros, just like they do on the timer before our services here. Because when they get down to zero, just as all the world's armies are gathering around Israel in the valley of Megiddo, the Bible says a curtain opens in heaven. And in Revelation 19, verse 11, the Bible says, Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. The armies of heaven. That's us. I like that, don't you? What have we been doing? We've been doing drills for seven years. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God the Almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And that's how it's coming down. But it comes down to this. There's a test. Just as sure as it was there for Adam and Eve, it's there for you and me today. See, we're, we're waiting for the evacuation. We're waiting for Jesus to come. But before he comes, you have to make a decision. Are you going to receive him as your Lord? If you do, you're going to have a good time during the evacuation. And when the tribulation takes place, you're going to be like somebody flying over a storm. If you don't receive him, then you're on your own. That's not something I can afford. I mean, God has done so much to keep you from being on your own. I mean, he sent, a, he sent his son to pay the price for our damage. And he invites you into his family. It's just, it's free. If you will accept what Jesus did for you on the cross, if you will endorse the payment that he made for you on the cross and receive him into your life, God will birth you into his family.